Hello, and welcome to the Talking Precision Medicine podcast. In this series, we sit down with experts on the application of AI and big data analytics in the drug discovery space. Our guests are innovators, business decision makers, and thought leaders at the intersection of data and therapeutics. We discuss the promise, practice, challenges, and myths of AI and precision medicine. This show is brought to you by Genialis, and Raphael, its CEO, is your host. Genialis is focused on data integration and predictive modeling of disease biology to help accelerate the discovery and de-risk the development of novel therapeutics. Today, our guest is Gabe Musso. Gabe is Chief Scientific Officer of Biosymmetrics, a Toronto-based biomedical AI company empowering healthcare and R&D innovation. In this episode, Gabe tells us how Biosymmetrics is working to clean up data cleanup by applying a rigorous product framework to data pre-processing. Let's dive in. Welcome everyone. Thanks to, for joining us at Talking Precision Medicine. It's my great pleasure today to be hosting Gabe Musso from Biosymmetrics. Gabe is the chief scientific officer there. Biosymmetrics is an AI company based out of Toronto. And I'm going to let Gabe tell us uh, what you guys are all about. So please do. What's the mission, uh, vision, and product of Biosymmetrics? Thanks. And thanks very much for having me on. It's great to be here. So Biosymmetrics is very much a company that's built around our software platform, Augusta. Augusta is designed to take multiple types of biomedical data, so things like you know, um, medical images, genome sequences, tabular data, chemical structures, and allow people to build workflows that go from the raw data set all the way through to machine learning models. And so that can encompass you know, pre-processing, data integration, normalization, all the way through to machine learning. The reason we focus on that entire workflow is because we were seeing ultimately the pre-processing be a bit neglected. And because of the consequence of those early decisions in terms of ultimately the performance of machine learning, we really felt it was important to build a software framework that could allow for automatable workflows that could be more efficient and more effective than what we were seeing traditionally. Interesting. So um, before we dive into the product, how the product works, tell us a bit about who are you solving problems for? What is this machine learning Absolutely. For? Yeah, definitely. So in terms of application, we basically have run in a few different areas. By virtue of Augusta ingesting chemical structures in addition to other data types, we do a lot of work in the drug discovery space. So we've done a lot of work for early stage R&D for drug discovery in terms of taking chemical structures, primarily small molecules, and looking at predicting activity or predicting mechanism, or taking chemical structure and being able to say, okay, you want to use experimental platform X and not experimental platform Y based on chemical structure. So this is an area that, you know, before joining Biosymmetrics, I had done a bit of work as a postdoc and we saw work quite effectively. And so we really have tried to build that that kind of know-how into the software as well. So it's about allowing companies to kind of use their data effectively, specifically larger companies that start to generate data that can be a bit more siloed and can kind of operate in isolation in terms of how these different divisions are, are generating experimental data and can kind of work across these different silo divisions and allow for more integrative models that we tend to see are a bit more effective in terms of, of predicting mechanism and predicting outcome. The other area that we work in is disease diagnosis. So we've built diagnostic models for things like uh, autism, Alzheimer's disease, prostate cancer, atrial fibrillation, always beginning with a range of different input data types, whether it's you know, medical images or EMR data or genomic data. We've seen consistently that when you're able to combine data sets, so if I can build, for example, a diagnostic model to predict a patient's disease outcome that's based on their genomic data plus their EMR data plus their medical imaging data, I can build a more effective model than I'm if I'm relying on any individual data type alone. So we tend to emphasize uh, frameworks that can take 
multiple data types in concert and allow pre-processing and integration and ultimately machine learning from those data sets in a way that's ultimately very transparent and can extract features from, from each of those and, and allow you kind of interrogation at each of those decision points, whether it's for pre-processing or integration. The last area that we've worked in recently has been in uh, payer analysis. So looking at kind of costs associated with different health outcomes and making recommendations based on projections of those costs. It's kind of a mouthful <laughs> being, a, being a small company uh, to work in kind of three very large verticals, but that's really where we've seen the most application. Although to be honest, we're, we're consistently pulled more into the drug discovery space. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastically interesting. I, I think that um, this is the promise of, of a lot of kind of AI platform companies is taking that linear 20 years of drug discovery pipeline that goes for, you know, through R&D into the clinic and then to the payer and think about circularizing it a bit with your platform and touch more yeah, points. That's ultimately how we saw it as well. We saw it as a series of pain points that yeah. lead to what's, what's fundamentally the same problem, which is, I mean, drug discovery is an expensive endeavor. So how can we use machine learning effectively to reduce the cost, both of, in terms of generating better early clinical leads, in terms of vetting those leads, in terms of better understanding and, and partitioning patients into disease categories and disease definitions, and then ultimately, how do we understand the full consequence of each of those disease and diagnoses? And so, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it's overwhelming kind of when you when you compartmentalize it, but it is ultimately one large process. So I'm really struck by two things here. One are, are just sort of the range of, of application areas, and then the other, of course, is the, the range of data types you described, so images and tabular data, sequencing, chemical structure. And I guess a third would be the range of diseases you guys have already demonstrated on. So how what has been your approach to build something sufficiently abstract to kind of tackle you know, such an agnostic approach to machine learning? Oh, that's a great question. I'd be lying if I said we could handle every use case, <laughs> but I guess that's kind of the risk of sounding self-serving, the strength of what we constructed. So our emphasis from the beginning was to build something modular, was to identify what are really the core components that we feel like have to be a component of the software. So things like you know all of our statistical and machine learning and visualization functions, in addition to our ability to kind of permute any option, those are you know our core features that are kind of included across module. We then started to build a functionality that was specific for chemistry, for imaging, for tabular data. And then what we have ultimately is a modular platform in the sense that, you know, somebody comes to us and says, okay, you can work with images, but you can, you know, I really want to work CT scans. Okay, well, we've never really worked with CT scans. So we have to create a module that can process CT scans. The day we created, it's already got a lot of our core capabilities built in. We add what's, you know, what's necessary specifically for working with CT scans. And that process actually is, is pretty straightforward. So we're, co we're constantly building toward making that integration process easier, but that's pretty typical for us. We do have, you know, certainly users that can just license our software and, and go and hopefully be happy. But we, you know, we certainly emphasize our ability to be able to build customized deployments based on proprietary or novel or, or just data sets we haven't encountered yet because there's no shortage of those. So it's kind of, it, it, um, in a roundabout way, I don't know if I really answered your question, but in a sense, I mean, that's what we've always emphasized is that there's a lot of data types out there. We've done what we can to, to identify what are the, the most common, but certainly we have a framework we're confident that we can expand to suit new data types and, and new data cases as they arise. It sounds like your your users, your customers are going to have to be somewhat data savvy themselves. Is that fair? So you'd be working with either informatics groups or IT groups or, or computational groups um, within the pharma companies? To some extent, definitely. So we've done what we can to try to make Augusta straightforward and to make it uh, you know simplistic in the sense that Augusta is kind of doing the heavy lifting. 
in terms of interacting with these different data types and, and doing things like distributed computing and cloud computing and kind of all kind of backend stuff for machine learning as well. But it does still require a bit of technical know-how. I mean, right. it, it's certainly, it's ultimately still a language. And so if you want to construct an Augusta workflow, it does require a little bit of, of kind of understanding. That being said, we certainly have had clients that have said, look, we, we don't want to see code at all. Like we, we just want to give you data and have you produce an output and we can accommodate that as well. I mean, it, we're just as comfortable using the software ourselves and generating a report or generating, you know, an inter interactive uh, dashboard that people can kind of, uh, you know, play with their data and, and implement workflows that we've designed. We're more than happy to do that as well. So yeah, we are, we are kind of, I wouldn't recommend necessarily that a user with either no uh, history or inclination of doing any programming or knowing data science at all, grab an Augusta license and, and work independently. But I wouldn't say that anybody that's in that category should be dissuaded from either using ours or anyone's software, but sure, uh, ultimately sure. that's still a use case that, that we can accommodate as well. And, and I'm quite certain Augusta runs on the cloud. So when you're thinking of breaking down data silos, you give people sort of a central point to, you know, where they can upload their disparate data. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we, we do get a lot of mileage out of cloud computing. Uh, Augusta runs you know natively in the cloud. But that being said, I mean, with the you know with Augusta being Dockerized, if somebody did want to work from their own you know even from their own cloud accounts or from their own uh, you know conventional servers, we're happy to, to accommodate that as well. But yeah, cloud deployments are, are pretty much the mainstay for us. I'm I'm a little bit curious. I'm you know clicking around on your website to learn more about Augusta and. Without stealing the thunder of, of some of your marketing material, you gave a webinar a while ago where you addressed this question: What is contingent AI? Um, what is in the the short version? What is contingent AI? Oh, that's a, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate you taking around the website. Yeah, so that that's our term for our kind of integrative machine learning process. So. When you're working in machine learning, it's a typical thing to be able to tune parameters and to be able to permute and, and find an optimal configuration of your algorithm. So mm -hmm. you'll take, you know, a, a standard model and you'll you'll start to tune it and you'll start to optimize it. And then you'll have it in such a way that, you know, it, it works the best for your individual data set. What we've done is we basically extend that process to go right from the point where you're directly obtaining the data. So, for example, if I wanted to process an MRI, I would have to make a bunch of steps or, or a bunch of decisions to go from that raw MRI image to the know, two numeric features that I can then use in a machine learning algorithm. So I would have to register that image. I would have to maybe adjust the contrast in that image. I would have to smooth the image. Each of those points, each of those steps has parameters that I would set. And so the whole point of contingent AI is allowing you to permute over any of those parameters, whether they're for processing images or for processing tabular data or for you know processing chemical structures and allow the same level of control or the same level of permutation that you would have for the machine learning part of the process. So it's basically taking that concept of mm -hmm. tuning the algorithm and applying that further upstream. So, and so that's our, our contingent AI. Yeah, you basically build a large contingent of models. And so that's kind of where, where the term came from. Okay. And so that's, yeah. So yeah. And our goal is to have people ultimately by doing that, spend less time at those decision points because when you can just you know, instead of laboring over should I be making should I be setting this parameter to a 0.7 or a 0.8 you know set it to set it to a range of values and then look at how each of your models perform and mm -hmm. see you know okay if I had kind of done this in my pre-processing instead of that if I had kind of imputed using the mean value instead of the median uh, I could have done way better and you'd be surprised how much how much consequence those decisions hold 
Sure. No, the, I mean, the, I think we all in the industry realize that a huge percentage, 75 to 90% of the work is this data aggregation and pre-processing. And if you screw up now, you know, <laughs> machine learning will give you an answer. It just may not give you the right answer, right? So. Well, yeah. I mean, this is, this is such a big thing. I mean, I, when I look at, and I, I don't kind of want to make any sweeping statements, but when you, when you look at why machine learning will tend to fail, it's not an algorithmic problem. The algorithms are sufficiently advanced. It's a data problem. It's just, there's just so much bias worn into the data mm-hmm. and those decisions that you make, I mean, they may make it better and they may make it worse, but it, it's really difficult to tell. And it, it really doesn't, you know, become apparent until you start to put models into production mm-hmm. and you start to see that your training accuracy really doesn't reflect what you're seeing in the real world. And that's a terrifying thing. And so it's just about how can we improve that data process or have more transparency over that data process so we can refine a little bit more easily and more quickly. Yeah, so that that actually raises an interesting question, though. So in your own hands, when your biosymmetrics team is clicking the buttons in Augusta, or when your customers are doing it themselves, how do you think about sort of the quality control of the pre-processing? How do you think about either educating yourself or your customers on whether they're adjusting the gain on an image correctly or adjust, you know, whether the choices they're making in pre-processing will will cascade in, in a favorable way or, or gum things up? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So we can certainly recommend to the best of our ability. I mean, the kind of blessing and curse of machine learning is that it doesn't care what inputs you give it. It'll always try to run the algorithm and it'll always try to give you a result. And you could have something that looks fantastic in terms of performance until you realize, you know, I had set the contrast to zero on all these images and it's basically discarding them and, you know, it's attaching to whatever other element for some reason give me good performance. There is a range of options that we like to kind of play in in terms of what's realistic and you kind of have to safeguard against not including parameter options that are just effectively give you garbage. So there is still a bit of oversight that we recommend in terms of, you know, you can certainly, we would like to recommend that users have enough awareness and we're we're running it. We certainly like to make sure that we have enough awareness to know what input parameters are realistic or compatible. But again, that's something that, you know, it, it does require a little bit of groundwork as well. Yeah, I, I think that that's one of the things that we in the industry have to be smart about educating folks on is that, you know, machine learning and AI are not uh, silver bullets and they're not magic pills. They take a lot of work and a lot of it, frankly, is is trial and error or just empirically testing things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's going to give you a different perspective than a human operator would, which is part of the greatest and worst things of it. I mean, there's those examples of, you know, uh, machine learning looking at cat or dog images and saying it's an avocado. Well, you know, a human would never make that mistake. And you can look at that and think that it's ridiculous. But the truth is that, you know, machine learning will make different mistakes than a person would. And so there are a lot of instances where, you know, a human operator would have a lot of difficulty distinguishing between two images and, you know, the appropriate algorithm would not. So there's a good complementarity there. Whereas if you can leverage both, you know, operator screening and machine learning, you really have the ability to kind of push high in terms of accuracy. And so, yeah, that, that's consistently what we recommend. We don't see, you know, machine learning based diagnoses or processes as represent, as, sorry, as replacing human operators. We see it as a complementation. And so that's always how we've approached it as well. Yeah, I think that's a very sober and sound way to do it. So I'm curious to get in a little bit more to both the kind of data you guys use and the kind of algorithms. Let's start with algorithms. So what once an Augusta user has pre-processed their data, what can they do when they're ready to actually start building models? Yeah, it's a great question. So, for example, let's say you've got your data sets in Augusta, you've created your Augusta objects, and you want to proceed over to the machine learning. Effectively, you use the Augusta syntax and you say model equals, and there's any number of models that you can define. And these are you know, deep learning models or they're shallow models. Effectively, any of the models you're familiar with, if you've used scikit-learn or you've, you've used PyTorch, are available to you within Augusta. 
Okay. And so you define them all using the same identical syntax. And there's, you know, we have documentation on what options would be available to each of those. And then you go ahead and define your models. And so in that sense, it makes a good framework for, you know, we don't have a horse in the game in terms of which algorithms we would necessarily recommend. We always recommend people put, you know, a number of them that are, again, appropriate head to head and, you know, see what mm -hmm. kind of performance they get and go from there. But from our point of view, it's, it's just about making that comparison process as simplistic as possible. Yeah, that's a, a really important point. I mean, I think that for either practitioners or even more important stakeholders, maybe, you know, the biologists or the domain experts who are not running the model, but need to help interpret it, what kind of results are provided? And, and how do you think more generally about communicating the results of a, an AI model and, and maybe even, you know, trying to explain the model down the road? Oh, that's a great question. We've always kind of leaned more towards user flexibility. And so, for example, one of the things you can do is you can define exactly how you want your model to be evaluated. So you can set what type of cross-validation you'd like or bootstrapping you'd like, and you can define, you know, how you want to evaluate your model in terms of, do I want, you know, precision recall? Do I want rock curves? Do I, like, what kind of uh, metrics do I want to look at in order to evaluate the accuracy of my models? That's ultimately up to the user. And again, what we recommend is, is looking at a few of them. So kind of have a few different metrics side by side. And it is difficult to say. I mean, there's certainly nothing universally we would recommend in terms of how you would interrogate a model. It, it a lot of times is contextual. And so, again, I mean, we are kind of solution to this, if you can call it that, is to just provide the user with as much options as possible. And we're always there to consult and to stand beside them and say, okay, you know what, your model looks good, but actually you should have looked at it in this context. And, you know, this is the cross-validation we would have recommended. And ultimately, where we'd like to go with the software is have the software itself making those recommendations. But that's kind of how we approach it today. That's, that's great. That makes a lot of sense. I actually want to take a, a step back in the Augusta workflow. I'm personally very interested in data integration. And so it sounds like, you know, your users will be building models that consider multiple lines of, of fairly different data, right? Images, chemical structures, tabular data. You could imagine building a single model with all of those, or you could build individual models with each and then think about weighting them and integrating them later. So at what right. stage does Augusta do data integration? Is it early, intermediate, or, or later stage data integration? This is part of the customizability. You can kind of, you can design that workflow to really even compare those approaches in the sense that do I want to do some feature extraction or do I want to do some normalization of my data sets independently, integrate them, build my model. Okay, that's one workflow. Maybe I want to build another workflow where I, you know, I extract features from each, integrate them, finalize them, and then go to the machine learning. You can compare those approaches as well. And so the way that we typically would recommend it is to, you know, approach your data sets independently, integrate feature reduction or what have you, and then, then go ahead onto the machine learning. But again, we're not here necessarily to recommend one approach or another. The entire purpose of us building the software is to allow the user to kind of permute and, and to interrogate as many different approaches or workflows as possible and see what, what works best for a given data set. One thing we've seen to be universally true is that what works for one data set isn't the, the best approach for the next one. Right. And so again, I mean, it, it's just about building a, a robust framework that allows you to you know, compare approaches quickly. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, your new data comes in or, or your data is updated or ha you have a different data set and then you run the whole pipeline and then you instantly know, okay, in this case, it works better to have done the normalization afterwards. And actually, you know, I, I should use that approach and just to make that process a bit more fast. Yeah, no, this is a terribly interesting um, challenge, I think, industry-wide. And especially if you start thinking about, for example, diagnostic use cases uh, where, you know, there's going to have to be some regulatory aspect to an AI. Um, you want to, of course, be able to run an AI workflow the same on every case because then you have the internal consistency. Um, and so we think a lot at the Alliance for AI and Healthcare and, and in Genialis as well about how how and where in the workflow you can, you can standardize things and make them the same every time. 
and where you need right. to have that flexibility and be able to evaluate its impact. It's such an important issue because that transparency is key. Being able to understand exactly what the machine learning is doing so there's accountability. And so it's wonderful that you guys have taken that approach. And it certainly, I think, is something that's critical. Yeah, let's talk a bit more about the data coming in. So obviously, um, much of the data that we've been discussing in the hypothetical is coming from your users, from your customers and their internal programs and silos. Has Biosymmetrics invested in curating any data sets, either for the sake of you know, demos within the software or where your customers can add those to their own data set? We've typically relied, and when we've done showcase work or when we've done proof of concept, it's been with public data sets. Mm-hmm. We don't ship Augusta, Augusta necessarily with data sets embedded, although if somebody you know, wants to use a, a publicly available API or wants to integrate with a public data set, we'll certainly help them do that. And we'll try to make that process as straightforward and easy for them as possible. I can tell you kind of something that's on the near-term horizon is that we will be working to generate some of our data, but unfortunately that's the most I can, I can kind sure. of disclose at this point. <laughs> that's good, all right. <laughs> no, but that does seem to be kind of a, a fierce debate in the industry right now is, is sort of where to strike the balance between you know, in generating your own fit-for-purpose data versus relying on public data versus relying on partner data. And um, right. there, there are certainly plenty of companies that are taking an all-of-the-above strategy. And I tend to agree with that. I think there are true gold mines out there in the public domain. And certainly, you know, your partners have spent a lot of time and money on their experiments. The challenge, right. of course, is you have to invest in the curation because not all of it's good. In fact, probably only fractions of it are good. Absolutely. But you're entirely right that, that data are the new currency. This is this is what builds value, not only for companies, but I mean, for anybody really in general. And so how do we kind of generate that or how do we use that effectively is a crucial question. As a young company, you kind of wish that you had the resources and the patience to be able to go through that process with your with your clients and to be able to work that into contracts where, you know, okay, maybe we don't get as much for you in terms of conventional resources. Maybe it's more about being able to leverage your data in an anonymized way going forward for our own research and to, you know, to associate with other available data types. That certainly is an intelligent way to go about building a company in this space and certainly something that we've given a lot of thought to as well. What we really like, the the conversations we've had about access to data conduits where we're basically you know, we're, we're set up to collaborate in such a way that we have ongoing access to data and can use that data uh, in ways that are implemented to really impact patient care in a positive way. Those are the ones we've been the most excited about. As wonderful as, as data is and as valuable as data is, it has a half-life. It can decay. Your population changes. Your parameters change. Your machinery changes. Your surveyors change. So it's as valuable as data is, it's important that it remains current. And so what is ultimately very valuable that we've seen is ongoing access to generators of data. And so this is where we've emphasized collaboration. Yeah, no, I think that um, that finding these collaborations and especially working with really great experimental and clinical groups is, is key. And, you know, not everyone's going to have the full stack in-house. And we've relied heavily on that as well, working with just really first-rate researchers who design good experiments and are, are not afraid of generating high-throughput data in the process. Yeah, and it's ultimately beneficial for everybody. I mean, it, it leverages resources in such a way that, you know, you offer strengths that they may not have and are happy to leverage. And if for your purpose, it helps you not only, you know, work with a great group and provide something to them, but also potentially get access to data in an ongoing way that you can then use to build your business and have, you know, to generate value. I think it's certainly a great way to to move forward, definitely. Let's uh, shift gears a little bit. You had mentioned, you know, you guys are kind of a, a young team, although doing what you do, you must be quite a, a sort of diversely skilled team. Tell me more about Biosymmetrics. Um, how big are you guys? Where are you located? What's your, your uh, birth and growth story? 
Yeah, absolutely. I certainly feel like a young team. <laughs> I can really say that anymore. Yeah. We are, uh, we are, uh, haven't been around too long. The company itself was established in 2017. Uh, we were working on the software considerably though before then. And so Biosmetrics was founded in earnest in November 2017. But really, we've been working on this for quite some time. We are, there are nine of us that work from the office here in Toronto. This is mostly where our, our data science work happens. So we've got our, our engineers here. We've got our product leads here. We've got our life science efforts here. And we've got then uh, other eff- efforts that happen out of the US, which are primarily BD, marketing, and graphic design. So altogether, I would say we have uh, 11 people committed full-time to Biosymmetric and a few others that are part-time. So still quite a small team. We are expanding. We're constantly you know, adding people on here and there, but that's ultimately you know, the, the size of the team we are and, and how we're divided up. We initially began as data scientists. So mm-hmm. myself and, and a few others that you know, were the initial core group of this team we're data scientists and we're building software. For my part, at least, that's kind of dangerous. I'm not, I'm not you know, my, my background in um, molecular biology and, and computational biology. And so I certainly, I, I know enough to be dangerous, uh, but it's not until you start to bring full-time developers and software engineers on, then you really realize that, you know, they, they go about things a little differently. And so what we were trying to do is really pair the code development process with the data science process and make sure that we're, you know, not only expanding our capabilities in terms of, you know, on the algorithmic side and on the, you know, statistical data science side, but also that we're writing code that can be instantly put into production mm-hmm. or instantly is kind of the wrong word, right. but can be quickly sure. put into production and can kind of hasten that path as much as possible. We, we've spent quite some time on optimizing the software engineering part of this, and, and you definitely want to get that part right as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's, again, me being naive, you don't realize exactly how much work goes into putting out a software product until you go through the process. Mm-hmm. And everybody in the world knew this but me. Like, this is, this is something that, I mean, I, I wrote software for five years, but it was software that I was writing, you know, as part of my PhD or as a postdoc right. that, you know, served a purpose. And once that purpose had passed, you kind of move on to the next script. And it just, I mean, it's a much, there's much more rigor. There's much more kind of foresight that has to go into constructing production level software that, you know, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. But I mean, if, if it would be nice if I were better aware of these things from the beginning, but definitely, I mean, it's, it, it is a daunting process and one that I'm happy to say that we, I feel like have, have a good handle on now, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it was, it was painstaking. So uh, I want to, I was going to save this for, for the end, but since we're talking about your team now, um, you guys, you said about nine strong in Toronto for, for any listeners who have not been paying attention, Toronto has, at least from the U S vantage emerged quietly as what seems like a real powerhouse in AI in general and biomedical AI in particular, in addition to biosymmetrics, our friends at uh, Cyclica are based in Toronto. Yep. Uh, Deep Genomics is in Toronto, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and yep. there, there are probably several others, not to mention really world-class academic uh, institutes. So is it something in the water, Gabe? Is there a history that I don't know about? <laughs> what, what, uh, why is Toronto thing. so prominent? Yeah. I don't know if I can answer that necessarily. I can tell you kind of how it looked from my perspective. So I graduated in 2010 and I left Toronto and I moved to Boston. And I was in Boston for about five years and I moved back. When I left Toronto, and again, maybe this was just my perspective, but the thought of, of starting a company based on you know what I had done in my, my PhD work or, or kind of joining a startup or a small company wasn't on my radar at all. It didn't exist as an option to me. And again, maybe that was, I just wasn't aware of it, but it just, it wasn't something I was seeing people do. And, you know, the five years I was in Boston, I saw Atomwise become, you know, become a very successful company, Cyclica, like you you, you mentioned, and a few others. And there, it, there was just more, it was just more realizable to see other people do that and kind of break that door down and really have success 
as Canadian companies was huge. It was just kind of this this kind of you know this path had been illuminated. So when I came back in in 2015 and you know I was approached by you know some founders of a startup and hey do you want to start working on this? Yeah, absolutely I do. And that was you know that was 2015 and I haven't looked back. So it really I don't know if it's kind of infrastructure. I don't know if if it's you know some of the pioneers that had kind of paved the way and made kind of success more tangible. But there certainly was something that changed in that span, at least from my perception, that made this, this a lot more possible. And now, I mean, you, you talk to people that are in graduate programs or, or that are postdocs, and there seems to be a bit more opportunity locally for, you know, for, for transitioning from the purely academic world to startups and to small companies. When I was, so we were part of an incubator called Plug and Play, which was in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And so I made a lot of trips out uh, a few years ago. And I mean, when I was there, I kept, you know, I would tell people I was from Toronto and everybody was, oh, Toronto, there's the new information corridor. There's this, you know, University mm-hmm. of Waterloo and University of Toronto and I would hear all about it. And I was reading articles about how great Toronto was for startups. I'm like, yeah, we're a bit spoiled. <laughs> it really is. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, we've got this this great international reputation. And so, yeah, I mean, from my perspective, it, it's been fortuitous, but it's been great to be a part of that scene. And, you know, what aspect do we have? I do think that there's a certain amount of, I don't know, critical mass or, or momentum or groundswell that a, a city needs to, to grow like that. And um, we kind of came up out of Houston, uh, which also has a very burgeoning um, startup scene. I'm based in the Bay Area now, but coming up out of Houston, there are now, you know, there's a, a big incubator dedicated specifically to health tech and medical devices. And it makes sense because it ha- the city has the world's largest medical center. And so you should yeah. take advantage of what your, your resources allow you. And, you know, these folks um, starting companies in the space have access to, you know, the world's leading hospitals and, and so forth. But Toronto, I guess, Absolutely. has... You know, uh, Sir Jeff Hinton, right? So he's, um, yes. you know, obviously one of the most famous um, machine learning and deep learning minds in the world and the Vector Institute for AI and so forth. Uh, really seems like a phenomenal place, certainly since the last time I came to visit. Absolutely. The the kind of, it, we've always been strong in an academic sense around machine learning and around computer science. And there's always been this, a very strong healthcare industry here as well in terms of, I mean, there's downtown Toronto is home to a few major hospitals with international recognition. And so I guess it wasn't a matter, it was only a matter of time between, before those started to enter, you know, intermingle. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe it is kind of partly due to the emergence of AI and larger companies being very willing to partner with smaller companies when it comes to instituting new AI technologies and new AI-based technologies. That may have certainly been a large motivator as well, but definitely, I mean, like you said, Houston and Toronto and cities where there's that marriage of strong academic chops when it comes to machine learning and having, you know, access to healthcare and healthcare collaborators that are willing to work and kind of get data together, I think goes a very long way. So uh, let me ask you a little bit about just kind of a, the two sides of the coin. I'd love to hear about a win, a, a victory that, that you've encountered on um, your application of AI to healthcare, ideally in biosymmetrics or, or prior. And then the flip side of that is give me an example of some time when you guys took a swing and, and missed. And, you know, that's fine. We all do it. We, you know, sometimes yeah. the, the models just don't give us the answer we're looking for. No, certainly uh, all the time. <laughs> so I, I can, it you was can do actually it a lot. Order if you want, maybe give me the list. Yeah, no, that they come to mind a lot more easily. The um, the on to be truthful, it was a failure that that motivated us to start this company. It was we were working with autism data. And we were looking at uh, MRIs from a thousand autistic patients and controls, and we were looking for basically to extract features from those data sets and to be able to build a diagnostic, which we thought would be more objective and would allow us to differentiate between, you know, to, or 
to build a diagnostic that we could use going forward for autism. And so myself and, and someone else, we spent about four months building out a platform or a pipeline that would allow us to take these raw MRI images, process them, standardize them, normalize them, extract features from them. And then we fed that onto the machine learning. And I'm not a, a neurologist. I mean, I kind of, I relied on what was in the literature. I went by, you know, I, I spoke to people that were expert in the field and I used kind of their recommendations and I consulted the software and the manuals and, and used some defaults here and there and kind of struggled through until I got, you know, my features extracted. Then when it came time for the machine learning, a little bit, I was a bit more comfortable and I could, you know, I could optimize the models and I can, you know, I, I could play with it a little bit more and kind of permute things a bit more. And ultimately our model looked pretty good. It, it performed quite well on cross-validation, but really we were seeing that it was virtually all due to, to site effect or, or surveyor effect. And when we started to parse that out, really the model kind of fell apart. And this was despite us treating those variables as confounders, we were aware of them when we went into the, and started building the model. And still, I mean, the performance we saw was entirely based on site and surveyor. And so that was heartbreaking in a sense, you know, especially when you think you've, you've got something that performs well. And what was interesting was when I started to go back through the literature, we were building these connectivity maps between different regions of the brain where you could see very clearly that autistic patients had different wiring, for lack of a better term, or, or their brains were, were less coordinated than control patients. And so it made a, a kind of compelling story. And when we had this realization about the, the machinery and, and the surveyor effects, we started to go back through the data set and, and through literature, and we saw that you could trace the connectivity maps that people were drawing back to the decisions they were making in the pre-processing, where, you know, if, if people were making certain decisions, their connectivity maps would come out one way versus the other. And that, I mean, if that doesn't terrify you, <laughs> that, I mean, right. the fact that this decisions which are seemingly inconsequential have these profound effects and, and, and no people waste a lot of time and effort in terms of interpreting that when really, I mean, you, if I changed my parameters at the outset, it would have been entirely different. So that was a sobering thing for us. And that was something that really motivating us, motivated us to, to try to create a, a framework that was, uh, you know, that could help us evaluate those, the consequence of those decisions more quickly. In terms of a win, I mean, uh, more recently, I unfortunately can't tell you the name of the company, but we were contracted to work with drug data. So we were, they had given us a lot of their early stage R&D data and they were looking at, you know, having us take what was animal models. And so in this case, this was, they had done some animal experiments and they had given different small molecules and they looked at, quantified some different outcomes of those experiments and gave that data to us. And it was entirely obfuscated. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't, they didn't tell us what the nature was of the animal model. We didn't know the full extent of the chemical structure. We basically gave them a wish list of, of structural and, and other types of features we wanted. And they made some associations for us that we asked for in terms of relations to you know targets and, and all of that, what was available publicly for some of their compounds. Anyway, so they gave us this data and they asked us to, to go ahead and see what we could predict in terms of mechanism. And we went back to them and we told them what their assays were. And they were surprised that, that you know, just based on mm -hmm. you know, the, the performance of our models, we could not only predict potential mechanisms, but we had strung enough of those mechanisms together. We had a good sense of what they were looking at in terms of, of the types of animal models they were running. And so I'm not sure if that violated our contract or not, but they were, they were pretty impressed that we were able to kind of make that determination. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I'm always kind of uh, astounded by the power of some of these things. 
That's a great example of, of a win though. And, and what I like about it is it actually signifies that your, your modeling effort was able to capture some of the biology, right? Exactly. And that, that's why it was so, that's why I think of it as a win in that, I mean, it, it's always wonderful in machine learning. You kind of want this combination of it telling you something new and, and confirming enough that you know you're on the right track. And that to us was, okay, we know that, that we're picking up on some relevant biology here and look at these three or four new things that we've been able to get. That's what really gets me excited. When you can go back to them with three or four new hypotheses that weren't on their radar and they can go chase something new down and maybe save a bit of time. Like that discovery process is just, you know, that's why you keep coming back. Well, Gabe, we could probably go on for hours, but I think that's a good place to stop on such a, a wonderful illustration of um, how useful these technologies can be. Uh, so we're all going to look out for a major announcement from you guys, or at least a, an interesting announcement from you guys on data generation. Uh, anything else um, we should be looking out for or where can people find you in the next month or two? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to be out uh, at a few different meetings in Boston over the next few weeks. But actually, what um, would be great if I could tell your listeners is that we are releasing the newest version of our software, Augusta Architect, which you can actually go and trial from our, our website beginning at the end of October. So if you check our website toward the end of October, you'll be able to literally just click a link and try our software and get going. That's something we're very excited about. So yeah, I mean, that, that release, we've been working toward it for a long time, and we're very happy to, to be very near to it. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time today, Gabe. I appreciate it. Thank you. This was great. I, I really enjoyed the discussion. This has been episode 14 of Talking Precision Medicine. Thanks for joining us.